What is up, Levered listeners? Welcome back to episode 13 of the Levers podcast. Uh, we've got another special episode here. We've got a guest on, uh, Lucas Chan. Um, Hake, Crisp, and I met Lucas when we were back in college in St. Louis. Um, so today we're going to talk about, um, very broadly, um, China and its role in sort of the mega political climate. Um, we haven't done an episode on sort of geopolitics um, or kind of nation states more broadly yet, but this is an important thing to understand um, because your understanding of sort of how empires wane and fall and how they interact with one another, especially in a uh, hyper-digitalized uh, information economy, um, can help you better understand the world and position yourself accordingly. Um, so with that, Lucas, if you don't mind giving us uh, an intro, yeah. And we'll go from there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Uh, good to be here to talk about this uh, China. Um, you know, just briefly, I, uh, I've been, I lived in China for the past uh, five years, really four years, and then one year working remotely, uh, at, working for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace um, for their Beijing Center called the Carnegie Chinghua Center um, as a foreign policy research analyst. So um, kind of help uh, understanding, um, you know, what is China's foreign policy? Um, and kind of how are they pursuing their foreign policy across different regions of the world. Um, just, you know, in terms of how I got there, I, I started taking Chinese in ninth grade when I got into high school. And um, it's just something that I've continued since, in, um, including in college. I just kind of fell in love with the country, the culture, the politics, um, the geopolitics. It all just fascinated me. And so uh, when I graduated college, I uh, kind of made it a mission to get back to China. I spent uh, two years working in New York at Goldman, uh, doing like investment management and just kind of decided um, that I wanted to be on the ground in mainland China, working on kind of issues that I saw as substantively really interesting. And so after two years, I moved to Beijing and we've been working at the Korean Tsinghua Center for the past five years. That was kind of a bad introduction to myself, sorry. Um, but I will just say briefly, the way that, I just wanted to say this so that it's a topic we talk about later, the way that I got reconnected with you guys after college, uh, besides you know intermittently discussing some China-related stuff is, I saw Hake posted a video about yield farming at a time that I wanted to get into yield farming. And I reached out to him and you know he, he kind of took me down the yield farming uh, rabbit hole, but he didn't he didn't let me know that it was the degen yield farming i took you into titan i think <laughs> i went straight I mean, I don't from know low if... yield farming to degen yield farming and i missed the legitimate yield farming aspect of it so <laughs> i took you right into a rug pull <laughs> well yield farming is, is is the great leap forward so we're all in it together um, so Lucas, let's, let's start off with one broad question to kick it off and then the lads will hop in with whatever they're intrigued by. So I guess I have, um, two maybe interrelated questions, but as, um, as an American, um, who granted was, was, was fluent in Chinese and has always been interested in the culture. Um, it was more natural for you to go over than, than the average American, but still probably, um, um, a little bit shocking uh, in, in, in some ways. What, what was it kind of like um, to go over there as, uh, as an Anglophile? And then kind of a, a follow-up, what do you reckon is one of the biggest or a few of the biggest uh, misunderstandings that, um, that the Western world have about life over there or about, or about China in, in general? That, that's a, it's a good way to start it. Um, so, you know, to be completely candid, like 
and this is like a really vivid memory for me. Um, like the first day I arrived in China, I was like euphoric, um, like five years ago. Um, and it really was actually a super easy and smooth transition. Um, just because I think if you can speak Chinese and if you have an open mind, um, China is like an incredibly, uh, welcoming country and Chinese people in general, um, you know, especially if you speak Chinese, they're really interested in like learning about you, your background, and especially what you think of China and um, how you view China. So um, to be perfectly candid, um, it really wasn't that difficult. Um, you know, I, I definitely, I definitely will caution though, that that's not the normative view. I mean, I think I've met so many foreigners who moved to China, you know, really excited and after a week are just like, where am I? What's going on? It's, it, it's, it's, it's a totally different culture and environment. Um, and it's, uh, it can be a difficult place if you're not open-minded and, um, if you're not willing to kind of like dip into and understand their culture, because it is such a distinct and powerful culture that, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to go to China and live as an American unless you're only surrounded by other Americans. And if that's what you're doing, it's like, why even? live in China in the first place. Um, so I hope that answers the first one, but I'm happy to kind of dig into it deeper. Um, in terms of misperceptions, um, you know, I think there, there's a lot. Um, probably the, the one that stands out to me the most in talking with people in the United States, you know, I've been back here for a year or so. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's really stood out to me is how hawkish um, American opinions of China have become. Um, even myself, I see myself becoming incredibly more hawkish on China policy, just as a result of not being based in mainland China anymore. Um, but when I talk to a lot of these people, they seem to have this view that China is this kind of monolithic country that is like a well-oiled machine. And, you know, the Chinese Communist Party says one thing, and there's like perfect mechanisms in place that then implement that policy and carry it out to perfection. Um, and that's just simply not the case. I mean, it's one of the most populous countries in the world with a sprawling bureaucracy, um, that is oftentimes disjointed and not coordinated. And it, fa it faces a lot of challenges in terms of how it's going to be able to administer the country going forward and maintain economic growth and pursue a foreign policy that makes it more comfortable in the international order that we have today. Um, and so I just always tend to push back on this idea that the Chinese Communist Party has this master plan that they're going to be able to execute to perfection because, to be honest, just, you know, having lived and worked in China for, you know, over four years, it's, it, it's, it's quite disjointed and hectic there a lot of the time. And uh, they're going to have a lot of challenges going forward. Um, there's, a, there's a saying, it's like, uh, which is like the top has its policies and the bottom has its opposite policies. And it's often used to describe kind of the dynamic between the central government in Beijing and the um, provincial governance across China, basically saying that, you know, they're always competing with each other, their interests often clash. Um, and so I think, you know, it really just speaks to the need for a lot better nuance and understanding of the internal dynamics of China and how it operates. And I'll just close by saying, you know, all of that aside, um, one of the biggest difficulties for China is creating a system in a country where um, foreigners and outside observers can understand what's happening because it is a very closed system. And especially when it comes to politics, it's basically like a black box where you're kind of just 
have no idea what's going on at the deepest levels. And then you see little signs in terms of policy adjustments or promotions and kind of have to interpret what's happening. That's yeah, super I mean, interesting. Cause I do feel like Americans and like the narrative almost treats China like a super AI that yeah. anything they want to do, they can achieve like top down dictate. And then every kind of analysis or in like mainstream news starts with that, like, if China at the top wants to do this, then everyone follows suit and they have just solved all coordination issues. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's just simply not the case. And that's not to say that there aren't instances where that happens. I, obviously they have a very, you know, the government does function well and they're able to do things, but um, you know, it's just to say that it's a much more complicated picture than any kind of the black and white narratives that I think are more prevalent in the Western media. It is interesting. We, we we do get little slices of insight into into the mechanics over there, um, and I think like the the very broad brush is um, it's 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 top down, it's efficient, and it's a machine, right? It's like some combination of that is what Americans and and um, and, and Brits and, and whoever else get. Um, but but I also think it, it is all it is all relative. So um, you, you talked about how. You know the the plan doesn't just trickle down into existence and get executed flawlessly, right? There's there's a top down, the Shang, and then there's the uh, the the ground the bottom up dynamics, the Xia, um, and it's still comprised of human beings that'll have their own incentives and desires. But like exactly. at least during COVID, you saw that um, you know the the Chinese were able to mobilize hospitals um, sort of overnight, and um, you know certain um, I don't know certain infrastructure pieces overnight very quickly. And then you look at like California, right? And, you know, they've been trying to build a train line between LA and San Francisco for 20 years and they're not even done with the eminent domain, right? And so like, these are these are the, the drawbacks maybe of a more democratic, less efficient system. But it, I, I think it's all, it's all sort of um, relative. A, an area that's particularly interesting to me kind of on the infrastructure topic um, is how China uh, projects so, you know, some some combination of, of hard and soft power, maybe we don't even need to be that extreme, but how they reach out um, and connect with with other nations. And I think the way they've done that with a lot of um, developing nations, sort of the way the U.S. used to do um, is, is via this this Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so I think it would be helpful um, for for listeners if, Lucas, you could give a brief summary of, of, of what that initiative seeks to do. Yeah, so um, the Belt and Road Initiative is basically, um, you know, a pretty massive international infrastructure development initiative that was launched by um, Xi Jinping, I think, back in 2013. Um, I think he was in, like, Kazakhstan, and he gave a speech about it. Um, and the Belt is basically, like, a series of land corridors, and the road, which is kind of ironic, is a series <laughs> of maritime corridors to um, kind of create economic linkages and supply chains um, between China and the rest of the world. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it, in recent years, it's taken on a, a geopolitical tinge, um, where it's seen as a way for China to kind of, um, you know, get leverage and build economic and political relationships with countries so that China has greater international influence. Um, but I think, you know, initially it really started out as a way for China to say, listen, we have these, you know, massive state-owned enterprises and huge industrial complexes, tons of the tons of raw materials, and we need to figure out a way to more efficiently use it. And there's a, you know, 30 or 40 trillion infrastructure gap in the developing world. 
um, let's get out there and um, let's start, you know, helping develop our own industries and our own economy by helping other developing countries develop. Um, and interestingly enough, the, the way I was actually exposed to the Belt and Road Initiative first, and it, it wasn't called the Belt and Road Initiative at the time, was at WashU in St. Louis. I, uh, in my, my summer of my sophomore year, I traveled to, I got a research grant from WashU and they sent me to Kenya to um, basically intern for a Chinese overseas um, engineering company called Kovic that was building roads and um, runways in Kenya. And I basically interned with them for like a month and just kind of wrote about what were the challenges and opportunities that um, they were facing. And at the time it was basically that they were coming into the country and they were providing like economic, um, excellent and really efficient development of infrastructure, but they weren't developing the local economy at all. You know, like they brought in all their workers from China for the most part, for most Kenyans, the only opportunities they had was low level, like wage labor. There wasn't like management training programs. And then they were also importing all of their resources, mostly from China as well. So they weren't even helping to, um, to you know, they weren't even like using Kenyan resources. And so it was kind of like this balance between like, listen, we're getting this great infrastructure, but long-term, like we're not really getting the type of job growth or economic growth that we might need out of this stuff. And interestingly enough, a lot of those challenges are still challenges that many projects in the Belt and Road Initiative are facing today. Um, that said, I'll say, I think my own view is, I, I don't view necessarily the Belt and Road Initiative as an inherently like nefarious project. Um, I think it's really gotten like blown out of proportion. I think basically what happened, you know, there's a lot of talk about debt diplomacy that um, these uh, Chinese, you know, companies go abroad, they, you know, get a contract for a project that is not doable. And in return, they get like, you know, claim on land in a certain country, or they get access to natural resources. I think what happened is basically uh, Xi Jinping came out, said, listen, we're launching the Belt and Road Initiative, like, this is what we're doing. And like we were just talking about, everyone, you know, below him kind of like suddenly was like, oh, whoa, like Belt and Road Initiative. Like, what does this mean? Like, what should we be doing to like be in line with promoting the Belt and Road Initiative? And for many companies, they saw, wow, this means we can get really easy access to capital. We can expand our customer base. We can expand abroad. And they were just like, all right, let's go. And they just all went abroad. They went into Africa, Southeast Asia, these countries where it's incredibly difficult to operate because of both the economic environment, but also the political environment. And they kind of just were out of their depth. And so, you know, four to five years after the initiative was officially launched, we start to, we start to see these cracks. We start to see these projects that were way over, um, way overdue, um, that, you know, were piling up debt. And it kind of coincided with a period when, um, you know, international uh, perspectives on China were hardening. And so the confluence of those two narratives led to this idea that the Belt and Road Initiative is this nefarious geopolitical project, when reality, I think it's just a massive infrastructure development project that kind of got off to a rocky start and now is in the process of um, kind of reforming to be a more efficient, um, to put out better projects. Um, that said, I do think obviously there is a geopolitical component to it. Like, Obviously, in China's eyes, it's great to have economic and political relationships with as many countries around the world um, so that, especially in the current environment, as attitudes harden towards China, they have people they can call on to vote for with them in the United Nation or to you know, join other multilateral forums that um, try and hedge against the type of kind of multilateralism we're seeing come out of the Biden administration. 
at the beginning of that, um, you talked about how um, when these infrastructure projects were rolled out, one of the tricky things to do was balance uh, the efficiency and progress of these projects uh, with ensuring that um, that progress is accompanied with some local development of the economy um, and providing um, providing um, you know quality of life and opportunities um, for local employees. Uh, and I can see how that would be a super super tricky balance. Um, and in combination with the fact that um, you know China was doing this so quickly, how the narrative, at least in the West, has been as negative as it is. Um, I'll, I'll give an anecdote, um, and I wonder if um, you can speak to um, the implications more broadly. When I was in Istanbul, uh, I was on a ferry, um, and there was a lot of folks, I think from Algeria, somewhere in Northeast Africa, where um, I think China has a few initiatives, whether they're dams or um, you know energy production facilities or trains, I'm not sure. But a lot of these folks... Um, their third language was English, uh, and their second language was Chinese. Um, their first being either French or whatever local African dialect. And I was like, "What's you know what what's going on here?" Uh, and they're like, "Well, we were paid to to learn Chinese. We got education for free if we were able to demonstrate some proficiency in Chinese." So um, it's super easy for me to fall into um, the deep criticism. Um, of this projection of power. Um, but an anecdote like that, you know, take it for, for what it is, um, suggests there is some balance being struck. Um, there is, um, you know, some progress um, towards something that is not, um, you know, purely feeding the sleeping dragon and all its needs. No, I, I think that's completely right. And I, I don't mean to say that right now, they're, they, I think they are reforming and revising BRI and, and they're, they're getting much better at the type of projects they um, do and how they proceed doing them. I, I, I think basically like 2016 to 2017 was when the kind of central government started to think to themselves like, we can't just have companies going out and doing whatever they want because they have free access to capital. We need to really do this in a much more meth uh, methodical way. And so I think now basically from 2017 to kind of 2018, um, I, I can't remember the exact years. It was right before basically like this huge Belt and Road Forum conference that was held in China. We saw it was pretty quiet on the Belt and Road front. And um, I remember talking to a few scholars and basically what they said is, listen, like we're in our think tanks, we're in our policy roles right now, just like looking at what we've done right, wrong over the past five or six years and how we can fix that going forward. And so just because you don't see a lot of new projects coming out, just because kind of there's not as much media and propaganda around the Belt and Road, it doesn't mean it's dead. It doesn't mean that it's failed. It just means we recognize that, you know, things haven't gone as smoothly as they should have, and we're trying to fix that. And so I think kind of your anecdote speaks to examples of that. I also just think your anecdote is a good example of the reason that the Belt and Road Initiative works, like the reason that it has been as successful as it's been is because China is providing something that the world genuinely needs. And these countries are desperate for investment and for infrastructure. And until there's other countries that are able to provide it at kind of the scale that China does, they're going to look to China for this type of investment. And especially when China does it on, even if they're giving out you know, mostly commercial loans, if they're doing it in a way where there's not heavy restrictions on how those countries have to govern or, um, you know, human rights, you know, more of these sensitive issues, um, that's going to make them all the more willing to sign up. Right. Right. Why, why is, um, 
Like, why do you think China is so much more effective at building infrastructure than the U.S.? Um, like, or at least that's that's kind of the take over here, right? We just went through COVID and we kind of couldn't spin up any new infrastructure. So we had to basically shut down everything to not overwhelm our health infrastructure. Um, whereas, like, the narrative is that, yeah, China can just build uh, new capacity so quickly. And then also this Belt and Road Initiative, it sounds like they're able to go in and help build out infrastructure uh, in countries way faster. So I'm kind of interested why you think that is, or if that point is even makes sense. So I, I don't know. It's a good question. I, it's, it's something that, uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know the exact answer. My own view is probably that list China has just, you know, spent the past 40 years, basically building the exact same infrastructure in their own country. So they have massive capacity to do this type of infrastructure development. You know, the U.S., we built most of our roads and bridges and stuff a long time ago. We're not, we don't have, you know, these massive um, organizations that are purely devoted to those type of activities. So for China, I mean, a lot of these companies, especially if you look at things like high-speed rail, like that is what they do and they excel in it. And they're amazing at it. Chinese infrastructure, as you know, most people will tell you live in China is pretty incredible. Um, so they have the expertise and the know-how how to do it because they've been doing it, you know, consistently for the past 40 years. Um, I think where, you know, I, I, so I don't know why the U.S. isn't so good at it. That, that, that's one reason that would think to me. I mean, I, I think where China kind of falls into a trap is, um, is the idea that they can simply just take what they are doing in China, take that expertise and go into a very difficult, you know, market or political environment, like somewhere like Pakistan or, um, you know, many of these African nations and just replicate the exact success they've had in China. And so I think that's a lot of the, that's where they're facing the biggest challenge. Um, and to be honest, like, I don't think the U.S. wants to be, I mean, I don't think you could go to any U.S. like contractor or private company and be like, hey, we want you to, uh, we want you to go to this, you know, developing country. It's a very risky political environment. Um, we're not really like sure we don't have like kind of the contacts on the ground to like make sure that you have all the access and stuff that you need but just go try and build a road like I think most US companies would be like no why would we do that you know and um, the CEO of Huawei this guy Run Jung Fei uh, who's a pre pretty candid when he speaks and he, he was talking about why Huawei is so successful and he said exactly this he was like he was like listen at Huawei an African nation comes to us and says, we need you to build like a telecommunication center in the middle of the jungle within like no, the middle of nowhere with no access to anything. It'll be an extremely difficult project. And, you know, he's like, my team and I are like, all right, let's go do this. Let's go tackle that. He's like, if you talk to any European or Western competitor, they're going to be like, no way are we willing to do that? You know, so China's been willing to kind of jump into these really difficult projects and they've had some successes, but it's also led to a, a, a lot of setbacks. I think you, you, you alluded to uh, two interesting points there. One was the last 40 years, China's been uh, honing the process of how to efficiently build good infrastructure. But the second one, which I think is, is maybe even more interesting, is um, they have a, like, a taxonomy of corporations, whether public or private, that specialize in certain things, right? And it almost sounds like it is a... Um, you know, it's a, it's a specialization of labor within the public sector, right? And we absolutely, I mean, we ostensibly have that, like we've got the FDA and the FCC and all that shit, but they're not really doers, right? They're regulators. Yeah. Um, we, we don't have the equivalent of like a, like a ICBC, right? Which 
which knows how to combine capital markets and infrastructure creation. Um, I think that's sort of a, an interesting combination that might explain some of the kind of lackadaisical performance on the infrastructure front. I mean, what's sort of shocking is that, um, you know, our ability to spend fiscally, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't end up going to anything infrastructural. That's what sort of like just blows my mind. Like it goes to a whole bunch of shit, whether that's projecting actual hard power abroad in the military or education or welfare. But for some reason, you know, infrastructure gets the short end of that stick, which um, which is maybe fine for like a little bit until the next president comes around. But like over the long run, like we, we need to get places like we need high speed rail. And if other nations, whether they're doing it in a top down manner or whatever other pejorative you might want to use or getting it done, Ultimately, building infrastructure does um, make the lives of businesses and, and consumers better. Um, so that sort of in, uh, sort of baffles incoming me. Uh, crypto rant, but there's this uh, kind of famous idea called the Triffin's dilemma. It's about how in like this globalized world, there needs to be a global currency, um, and for there to be a global currency, you kind of need to always be creating more of it to keep the liquidity going. And so whoever is the provider of that global currency ends up with the cheapest money. And so they can import all their manufacturing and goods. Um, and so people kind of have, were worried about America, um, you know, post-World War II and then also with the petrodollar. They were basically like, um, because we are providing the global currency with USD, we can just import everything we need. And so our manufacturing capabilities have just gotten weaker and weaker. Um, and it's good for consumers in the short term, right? Because we always can issue cheap debt, um, and we can always buy more, but then it makes it very hard for us to build our own stuff. And now we're starting to approach this point where it's like, we actually can't really build any of our own stuff. Right. Um, and eventually people are going to move off of the dollar. So it's kind of almost like parasitic, like it helps us in the beginning, but then, uh, other countries are getting strong off of it. Um, like China's taking advantage of all that money to actually build out manufacturing capacity, which is pretty crazy. I mean, it, it, it so yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think it, it gets to this interesting period that we're in right now where basically like the, the kind of like paradigm or the relationship you just described, Chris, is that's fine when China is not your biggest geopolitical competitor and, you know, something that you've seen as having um, exposure to them as a vulnerability that works great for the United States. Um, but then once you suddenly decide, wait, actually that country where we buy everything from that makes everything for us is, um, potentially, uh, like long-term strategic competitor, that, that, that kind of viewpoint doesn't work anymore. And suddenly you have to rethink all your policies. And so I think we're going through that kind of rethinking right now. I think, especially the Biden administration has really like if you look at the type of rhetoric they put out and the type of policies they put out, it's all behind this idea of making the U.S. run faster, not making China run slower. So it's this idea that we really need to reinvest in ourselves in order to kind of get back or, you know, get the U.S. back chugging along. The uh, luxury of having Shake, are you going to say something? Um, yeah, I don't really know the right way to ask it, though, but like, you know, <clears throat> I, I feel this sentiment in America um, from 
I don't know, that like China wants to take over the world, right? And I just would be curious, like your take, like actually being there, meeting just regular civilians, as well as, you know, being involved in the political system to some degree, like, is that, is that just a complete like exaggeration? Um, so, so, so like, so if you talk to, this is, if you talk to like an everyday Chinese citizen, and this is obviously mass, you know, huge generalization. So take it with a grain of salt, but China, they don't view China as like the world superpower. I mean, if you tell them you're from the United States, they're like, wow, that's, you know, incredible. Like the United States is an incredibly powerful country. I mean, that actually might be a little bit worse since I left, to be honest, because of everything that's happened here. But, you know, like generally they're like, wow, the U.S. is the world's number one superpower. People there are really wealthy. It's incredible to live there. Like, that's awesome. And then, you know, when they think about China, they're like, China is a developing country. Like if the U.S. is number one and China's number two, it's not like this. It's like this, you know. So there's a perception that China is still pretty far behind the United States. And, you know, they're not thinking about kind of world domination and, you know, mass geopolitics. You- that That's just not really on their radar. I mean, I for me, most Chinese citizens are still focused on, you know, having a job, having a house, having a car, getting married right. and having children. I mean, it's a it's a it, in many parts of the country, it's still a developing country where they're trying to just basically eke out a living and. Um, kind of like this major geopolitical great power competition that's happening at the highest levels doesn't really factor into their thinking so much, um, except for really when it comes to, you know, the U.S. maybe interfering in like core issues, like things like Xinjiang or Taiwan or Hong Kong. Like that's when you start to see like kind of this nationalistic fever kind of build up and things like that. But most generally, like on a day-to-day basis, if you're just in China, I mean, there's no like kind of animosity if you're just talking to someone. They're not like anti-U.S. or super pro-China. China's going to take over the world. It, it just doesn't really come that much into the conversation. Um, that said, at like the at the higher level, I mean, my own view is is what they're trying to do is they're just trying to you know create an international order that is more um, you know more in line with their own views of how the world should be run and you know, um, how a global order should be run. And I think, you know, their greatest, their biggest grievance is that the current um, international rules-based order, as the U.S. and many other Western countries would call it, is, was created by the U.S. and other European leaders, the European countries, and China didn't really have any say in how that system was created. Um, And second, that it's often manipulated um, or the rules are broken and it's okay for the rules to be broken by the U.S. in these countries. But when China does it, it's not okay. Um, and so I think for, if, if I think about, you know, what, if, if there is a grand strategy of China, what I think it is, is it's, you know, to continue to kind of like slowly rebuild and reform and recreate an international order that reflects China's greater power and influence and is respectful of Chinese views of the world. Unfortunately, those views of the world, when you get down to the most fundamental level, are pretty, they conflict pretty heavily with the way that the U.S. and other Western countries see the world. And so that's where you get this conflict. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like when I first moved to China, I was super naive because I was always like, oh, people just don't understand China. They don't want to take over the world. They just want the world to be, you know, more in line with how they view it. 
But, you know, then, like, as I started to think to myself, well, what does that mean? What does a world more aligned with Chinese interests mean? You know, that's when things, that's when you start to get a little bit, that's when you, that's when you start to see why there's this conflict and why there's these kind of divergent views. And can you, like, dumb it down for me and, like, like at the fundamental level, I mean, I kind of had an idea, but what is, like, what is that difference or what are those differences? Um, so I, there's a lot. I mean, I think the, the big one really is basically non-interference in another country's sovereignty. Um, you know, I think, uh, like Henry Kissinger has this line in his book, um, world order. That's like, uh, Asia is like the, this is misquoting, but it's similar to this. It's like, Asia is like the perfect practice of like Westphalia where like, you know, everyone has their own nation and you just don't interfere in their nation. And that's like the basic order. That's the basic unit. And so I think for China, um, you know, for them, it's like they are really, it really aggrieves them when the U.S. thinks it's in a position to say, hey, what you're doing in Xinjiang or, hey, the national security law you've implemented in Hong Kong, that's not okay. Um, you know, if, if you say that to a, you know, a Chinese expert or policymaker, I mean, their, their response is going to be, listen, that's part of China. We're, we're, that's our own issue. We're dealing with it in a way that we think is right. That's none of your business and you don't have the right to tell us how to deal with it. So I think that's kind of like the really, like the fundamental kind of difference in views. I think it's a, it's very widespread. Um, uh, I think the negative views that American civilians have of China, it sounds like it is uh, less so in the other direction, although that could be anecdotal. Um, I think it's a little bit concerning during the pandemic, the um, backlash at a civilian level against Chinese Americans and just Asian Americans in general, again, might be a testament to just the spotlight effect that the media has and them drumming up narratives that don't actually represent reality. Um, but it, it is also interesting how, um, how nationalism is sort of this tool, right? It's this tool that really, really helps those in charge to consolidate power um, and to kind of get the support of their populaces, because it's not really natural to humans to be uh, so patriotic about this broad entity that you're a part of and to be anti another entity. I mean, we are tribal, but it is kind of interesting how um, the nationalism is is the tool from the top. And it, it doesn't it, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what individuals on the ground think about other individuals on the ground in another place. Uh, it's, it's, it's humans and, and other humans. Um, yeah. so I think it's important to kind of, kind of remember that, um, if you're, if you're a patriot, you know, do, do, do it for, do it for a good reason. Think about what that means. Think about what the implications are and who has an interest in you being a quote unquote patriot. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really, I think that's a really valid point. And I, I think it's, I, I always explain kind of uh, the US-China competition and rivalry that we see today as mostly at the government to government level still. You know, it's something between the two governments for the most part. Um, it's not so much like American people hate Chinese people and Chinese people hate American people. And I think, you know, maybe it's getting a little bit worse, a little bit worse, but I think if we can kind of prevent that dynamic from happening, then, you know, there might be a way to like kind of maintain some semblance of maybe a productive, constructive relationship between the two countries. Um, and But I also think, TJ, I think it is really important to not underestimate the degree 
um, or the power of nationalism um, and the widespread view, um, or maybe not widespread, but this strong conviction and view in China that, you know, they basically had everything taken away from them um, and completely, you know, they were completely humiliated, their century of humiliation. And they're now building back their country to be better and stronger. And I think that really creates this dynamic where they are so sensitive to internal inf interference in China because they're so wary of that, of what happening, you know, in the 1800s ever happening to them again. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty interesting compared to America where definitely like half the narrative is how, um, basically the system has hurt people and we should kind of, uh, redesign the system internally right like a lot of americans are anti-american and i think part of the reason is because we're almost entering like a period of decadence um in the sense that we've done so well people we're kind of living in like a post-scarcity world where everyone's needs are taken care of and then we're looking around and we're like fighting internally and i think the nationalism while it's an abstraction and it's definitely been wielded in a in very like nefarious ways in history it does give people this like, you know, momentum, collective momentum, which it feels like we're missing in America. Like we're doing, it's like we've crossed, we, we were like that, you know, a hundred years ago and now we're, we've crossed that part of the curve and now we're all fighting internally, which is kind of sad. Well, it's, it's also a bet. It's also a, and I, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And I think it, 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 it just makes me think though, that one of the greatest strengths of America is this capacity for self-criticism and like, that often, you know, it's like a trope at this point, but, you know, basically that hopefully allows us to like, you know, correct the system and put it back on a better track. And in China, you just don't have that capacity, you know, the being critical of the party is not really an option. And so um, that it, it at the, on the one point, it's, you can, be, can maybe see it as a weakness, but another point, I think it's a huge strength of, of the U.S. Um, and hopefully something that helps us over the long term. Do you, I'd be curious, um, this is more of like, I guess it's like a cultural question. Do you think, and, and I kind of hate generalizing, right? It's not like all Americans are the same or all Chinese people are the same, obviously. But, <clears throat> you know, like I said, I, uh, I said before the podcast, but about half of my team works in China and I interact with them pretty regularly. And we did like a company uh, Zoom party or whatever. And we did like a talent show. And I felt like it was way different than when I had done like these zoom happy hours with my last company where everybody was American and lived in St. Louis. And I kind of got this sense and I don't really know how to put into words, but like they, it, it was like more community oriented, if that makes sense. And I just want to know if that's like something that you've experienced or if that's just like me completely like projecting something that doesn't really exist in Chinese culture. No, I, I think like, um, so I think in, I think, the way that I view it is that in China, I mean, like, because it's a developing country and many people are like, they need to make money. They need money. So they are working all the time. And so, um, you know, I was working in a half American, half Chinese company and our culture, I would say was kind of a blend of the two. So it wasn't a good representation of what working at Chinese companies, but what I can observe from like friends who worked at Chinese companies is, you know, there's, there's this, you're constantly surrounded by your coworkers because you're working so hard. And so you're, you know, your company kind of becomes a big part of your community. Um, and because you're constantly working so hard and at the office, you know, like you, 
you base a lot of the things that you do are centered around your work, your social activities and things like that. And so, um, I, I, I'm, that's funny. You guys did a talent show. I mean, that is just like classic, typical, like, you know, China work event, like a talent show. Really? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, You know, like putting on some sort of, or like performance or like doing a practice dance and showing off, like, which is very different. You're right. Than in the U S I mean, China has this thing called, uh, it's called the neon which is like, at the end of the lunar calendar every year. So during Chinese new year, like basically every company holds these like massive galas where they like rent out a ballroom, like every work unit, like does basically like prepares a dance or a song or some sort of performance. And like, they have the whole day off and they just like go and eat a huge feast and everyone like performs. And it's their way of saying like, great year. Like we've done a lot together. It's kind of like a, a much bigger version of like an American Christmas party and a lot more formal, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. Cause one of the things I noticed, again, it's hard to kind of put into words, but like if I compared to my last company, like people were reading poems and like playing s- songs on the piano. And it was like, like people would read like emotional, like moody type poems. Whereas if I, like I compared to American companies I've worked at, like nobody would do that. Like they would all be like too cool to do that. But, but it was like, people were really just like, oh, I'm going to like show my full self, my real self, you know? Um, and I thought, I don't know, again, if, if this is just me, like small sample size, but I thought it was cool. Well, it might also be a fact of like, all of us probably have worked for like companies and like corporations that are really like either business focused or like with cool people, you know, yeah. instead of like, like an art collective or you know, something like that. But yeah, no, I, they, I think they definitely like, they value, you know, culture, they value culture deeply, you know, it's, it's not, I, I actually don't know if there is like a too cool culture in China almost. I, I would be curious yeah. what it would be like, you know, whereas in the U S like the too cool culture is like the cool culture now. Like you, like, right? yeah, you act like you don't care. Like you're like yeah. trying things is almost like, Oh, like that's not cool. Like that you're trying something you have to just, you know, whatever. But I, I just got that sense that they had like no perception of that, you know, and which I, which I liked, it was just like, Oh, like we can just fucking be ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I've never really thought about it that way. It's a really interesting point. Yeah. Another, another difference that strikes me, um, particularly about, um, Chinese people, uh, but, but, you know, S- S- Southeast Asian people as well is, um, they strike me as way more digitally literate um, than the average person um, in Western nations. Um, just sort of, um, you know, smartphone and, and, and deeply native, deeply digital, deeply digitally native, um, which I think, um, you know, the, the fact that there's been such, what there was such big crypto uptake, I think speaks strongly to that. Um, but I guess something I wanted to hear a little bit about, um, changing gears. Um, sorry, if you guys had more questions, um, you can just interrupt me whenever you like, but, um, I'm, I'm very interested by, um, China's, um, frontiersmanship on this central bank digital currency front. Um, it strikes me that as usual, um, the Chinese public and private sectors have identified a really important paradigm really, really early. And they put the necessary, necessary wheels into motion to ensure that um, they're on top of that. Um, so kind of w- what do you view the roadmap of the digital yuan being? Uh, and how, um, how does its importance 
um, fit vis-a-vis -vis broader crypto um, and kind of, you know, the, the leverage and, and mining crackdowns? How, how do those things fit together? It's a good, uh, you know, I don't know if I have a good answer, to be honest, because I'm trying to figure it out myself. Um, you know, the the way I view like the the digital yuan is, um, you know, China already was, it basically already has a digital yuan. I mean, you don't use cash anywhere in China anymore. It's all digital. Like you said, TJ, like everyone is very fluent at using their phone in terms of transferring and paying with money. And it's just a matter of like creating a fully digital version of that, that can be integrated into the economic system and, you know, make things even easier, more trackable, more, you know, all of that. Um, the, the biggest argument I always hear for like why China is creating this digital yuan is like they want to internationalize the RMB and this will make it easier. And I don't know if any of you guys have the answer to this, but I mean, the question that always comes to my mind is like, why will creating a digital version of the RMB make internationalization of it easier? Because at the like, you know, at the most bottom, like fundamental case, it's still backed by the Chinese government, right? And the reason people don't accept RMB isn't because it's not digital. It's because they have a lot more um, trust and conviction in the US dollar over the, over the RMB. So that's something that I'm kind of grappling with in terms of like, Versus, and I'd be interested if you guys have any viewpoints on it, but in terms of like the um, like intersection with uh, what's happening in Bitcoin and mining and things like that. Um, I mean, I think they're just saying, listen, we can basically build our own currency that, uh, you know, uses um, similar technology, but is we can control um, and have much more transparency and insight into. We don't have a need for like a decentralized Bitcoin that, you know, could, you know, be used to, you know, get money out of the system or to do nefarious things. They just don't really want that. There's no place in their system for that type of, um, that type of, uh, that type of a currency. And especially that, that, that fact is exacerbated by this idea that Bitcoin and all the other blockchains are, or cryptocurrencies are in like very nascent and super volatile. And, you know, one of the, the like biggest China has like these three challenges that they're facing, I think. And like, it's like poverty alleviation, um, environmental degradation and like, um, financial secure uh, stability. And if you think about like cryptocurrency, like it almost checks all three of those boxes, you know, uh, financial stability, they're very speculative. People lose a lot of money, environmental degradation, but you know, Bitcoin takes, has a pretty big toll on the environment. Um, and then poverty alleviation, I guess maybe it doesn't. So two of the three boxes. And so I think, you know, as it, if, if you think those are like three, the three greatest challenges that Xi Jinping is saying facing the Chinese nation and Bitcoin checks two of them, there's really not really a place for it, um, in the country. Um, so I don't know. I, I'd be curious in your guys' view, you guys know probably as much, if not more than me about this. I think on the, uh, CBDC front, um, the benefit of moving to that over, the current setup is right now central banks uh, basically have relationships with regional banks, which then interact with the consumers. So if they want to change the money supply and affect the economy, they need to like do it through the regional banks or the commercial banks, which then percolates down into uh, like the end consumers. Um, and if you move to CBDC, the central bank can actually have a direct relationship with consumers. And I mean, for China, if they're controlling the order book that directly, and if someone does something wrong, instead of going to like 
a commercial bank and having them shut down a person's account, they could literally just do it from the central bank. Like they can move debit and credit money however they want. Um, So that's kind of why CBDCs, like people are starting to think about pursuing them because the old setup where you have the central bank that interacts with commercial banks is from like the analog world, right? Where you kind of have this pyramid structure um, because like you can't have a central bank interacting with all the consumers. Um, If you want to dig into that more, there's a good uh, book called Layered Money, which kind of breaks down the history of how we got into this kind of reserve system. I mean, another thing Layered Money talks about is, um, like, I I think that that's right. Like, the CBDC's value really lies in in, in reach and speed. Um, I think, like, it, it... Payments settle so slowly in the U.S. that it takes a while to get your funds and it takes a while to deliver funds to people that need them. Um, I think a really important part about um, CBDCs for those nations that, um, you know, have or are on the brink of having reserve status is um, for a country like China, um, who is trying to build things abroad, they are trying to... um, sort of, uh, you know, build economies abroad in, in developing nations that have struggled, their governments have struggled, um, their people have struggled, um, is with a cryptocurrency wallet and a digital yuan, um, that money travels across borders at the, at the speed of light. Um, and I think in combination with the fact that you are sort of circumventing uh, the middle layer between uh, the Federal Reserve um, and the consumer, that could be appealing, especially if you're part, if you're a civilian, if you're a laborer, um, that's part of a um, crooked government, um, a government that um, has, you know, their tendrils in a currency that they're inflating into oblivion um, and sort of, you know, it's sort of a kleptocracy that gives to those that already have wealth and those at the bottom earn um, their incomes in something that's valueless. To be able to give them real value that's backed by a... Um, a fiat regime that's a little bit more predictable um, than what they have, um, I would think would would be compelling. Both of those actually make a lot of sense and uh, have deepened my understanding significantly. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty interesting that, you know, the world still runs on these kind of like analog bank systems where you take, it takes days to settle. Internationally, it takes like uh, weeks to settle. Um, I think that's why honestly crypto part of the reason why cryptocurrencies are inevitable it's just like it makes the time to settle way faster which actually causes a lot of issues in um finance uh no one ever like really dives into it and knows that's the reason but uh, <laughs> i think p- part of the uh like part of the uh, criticism of um what, what crypto's doing i mean so much of the mind share of the criticism comes from individuals in nations that have the privilege of um, a robust currency, right? And one of the biggest uses for a CBDC or, or just any stable, universally accessible store of value, uh, and I don't mean that in the store of value versus unit of account sense, just an asset of, of that, that means something that has value that can be used to pay for goods and services. Um, it, so much of that interest is going to come from places that, that don't have that privilege. And for, you know, um, you know, for a, a Chinese worker or for a Pakistani worker, an Indian worker who has gone abroad 
to earn in a higher wealth area to send money home, something like a remittance is not only slow, but there's a middleman, right? And so it's for those groups that I think these issues are most salient. Um, and it's those groups where the adoption will, will really happen. And if either the US or China via um, unroll of a, of a CBTC can access those individuals, and for those individuals, it actually makes a lot more sense not to be doing BTC and Ethereum things, right? Like that, that's like, that's great for like store of value. And if you have the luxury of speculating and storing wealth, what if you don't have any wealth? What if you're living day to day and you need to live for the next 24 hours with something that is not going to inflate 5% overnight? I think that, that's where it becomes all the more obvious, kind of to Chris's point that, um, you know, crypto is not just a speculative phenomenon. It's solving problems for families that are struggling. I think the uh, I think the founder of I think it was the founder of Maker. He did he he did like a podcast essay. He basically like wrote an essay on why he founded Maker and um, read it on a podcast. It was it's really good. But he basically he's Argentinian and he went back to Argentina and would constantly saw anything any Argentinian peso he was being paid in lose money within a few months or weeks yeah. even and. It just, he was like, this isn't sustainable. And it just clicked for him when he started to see Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff. He was like, this is a way to get around that. And that inspired him to um, invent Maker eventually, ultimately. But if, you know, for me, that was like a huge clicking point when I heard that, because I was thinking like, yeah, what you just said, I was thinking I'm like living in like one of the wealthiest countries in the world with like the reserve currency of the world. So many of the arguments about like cryptocurrencies, they, they don't resound with me because I don't really need them because I've got dollar access. I get paid in dollars, you know, but as soon as you're in a developing country where that's not the case, it makes the use cases make so much more sense. Right. I think the geopolitics of money is super interesting. It's kind of just in like the background and we're watching it play out. But historically, since World War Two, basically everything has run on American rails, which is swift. Um, and so part of like America's dominance is that they can just lock people out of the financial system and those American rails um, whenever they want. And so now you have China coming up and they're building their own rails and they have production capacity, which warrants it. So people might hop on their rails. And so you kind of have like big players seeing that, you know, basically America, China, and maybe some year and like maybe the EU makes their own rails. Uh, they're going to try to control that because China doesn't want to run on America's rails, right? Especially if there's this antagonistic relationship. But then there's also other countries that don't have the production dominance to warrant building out their own rails and expecting anyone to use it, which is where then there's this third path, which is crypto. Um, and it gets super interesting. It's like if you're a third world, or not third world country, but you're like a third party type player where you're not in the dominant role. Do you go with the U.S.? Do you go with China and make like make a decision, or do you adopt both plus some other crypto rails, which aren't owned by anyone and no one can censor you on? And I think this is kind of Balaji's argument about like India, why India probably couldn't make everyone run on the rupee, but uh, they so they might they're more inclined to like adopt Bitcoin, right? Because they're already using it for remittances and they don't want to hop on like U.S. or China rails. Um, that I, I, Heaney, I completely agree. It's a facet of the whole thing that I hadn't even like really thought about until this whole El Salvador instance where like, you know, they could have chosen to go down the, you know, um, digital RMB path. Like they could have 
they they recently um, you know like revoked uh, recognizing Taiwan and started recognizing China. Like I'm sure there were funds available for them to move off of the U.S. dollar peg and into the RMB peg. And I find it really interesting that they instead decided to go down the Bitcoin path. You know, and 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 it speaks to like later down the road, like some of these even neutral cryptocurrencies, I'm sure will be will also have geopolitical implications. You know, and it's going to be really interesting to see how countries kind of deal and navigate that because it's going to get really complex. I think I think El Salvador what is uh, is being touted as something that is empowering for the people, the people that are there, and to some extent it is right, giving people access access to BTC, which uh, you know can't be controlled, uh, is inherently helpful. But to the point, it, it does in a lot of ways make more sense that they would have adopted some sort of a stable coin. Oh right? yeah, for sure. No, I'm not, so, I don't agree with their rollout of this whole thing at all. It's just an interesting case, you know? Yeah, so I think it like begs the question, if it's not for the people, then who is it for? Um, and I think Bukele is a, is a smart dude. He sort of took to Twitter as his mouthpiece, sort of like Trump did. But I think him, you know, doing laser eyes and, and putting BTC in his, his Twitter bio um, is sort of a way to like drum up support from, uh, from the younger generations and the demographics there are much different than in developed nations. But I think potentially the more important thing is, um, you know, being the leader of, uh, you know, Bitcoin adoption as a nation, uh, it, it attracts wealth to your area. It yeah. puts eyes on your area. And if you can be a safe haven for wealthy individuals that are in high tax areas, then that's a very compelling way to draw wealth into your country. Um, but so uh, just something to think about, Lucas, a game we play on, on the podcast going forward is um, it is uh, a probability game that we got from uh, this podcast we did on um, Thinking in Bets, which is a book by a famous poker player called Annie Duke. And so everyone's just going to go um, and give um, a probability question and everyone can think on it and, and answer in any way that they like. So uh, I haven't thought about mine much, but to give you guys some, some time to think, um, I will put it together now. Um, I think we should call the game Duke them out. I got one. Done. Yeah, hey. What's, so we do 1 to 100, right? Yeah. What's the probability that in the next 10 years we'll see a country adopt an altcoin as legal tender? <laughs> well, what... You, we so any, any yeah, non-Bitcoin... Yeah. <laughs> like, so I usually don't call ETH an altcoin, but like... It, non-bitcoin token in the next 10 in years the next 10 years yeah stable coins Can count no stable coins count. i don't think yeah, that okay. really counts all right but but, no. but one more clarifier can it be a coin that is not currently in circulation or or in other words minted, minted by the nation or some future party oh like could it be a, a digital like a central bank digital currency well, yeah, like a I guess. Central, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I that's guess. like. I guess I that guess. does fall. Uh, fuck. No, because no. the answer would be a hundred percent. Yeah, because China's. Dude. Yeah, N no, it, it. But 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 the, no, but the CB the CBDC is different because it's pegged to an existing okay, yeah, currency, it, right? Oh, We're talking about something you. that's free freely floating. Oh, got you, got you. But but you're saying that a government creates one that's not pegged to a fiat currency, right? right. Okay, I guess, I, I guess that would count as a shit coin. <laughs> get Trump back in power. Let's make the question if it's not controlled by a government. Yeah, it's like it's not controlled by a government and it's not Bitcoin. What's the probability? 
Three percent. Um, what'd you say? Three. Three percent. Yeah, I'd probably do like ten percent at most. Yeah, I say ten. Hundred. I, no. I just. I would, That's like, what I would say too. Like twenty, ten percent or something. But I could see it happening. To be honest, I don't know. Dogecoin, currency of Mars. Well, well, Hoskinson's trying to um, shill <laughs> Cardano in Africa. <laughs> I mean, I do. He's going to get I, a whole continent case... to adopt ADA. Dude, I, I would Cardano. I would actually could feel like. Could I honestly, I honestly like if it's one of them, it could be Cardano. I honestly yeah, like yeah. as much as I shit on Cardano. Does, does anyone? Have a Cardano wallet or ever? Dude, I it. think Cardano could be this thing. <laughs> I love. I have Cardano, a Cardano wallet. I love Cardano. What? Dude, I think Cardano could uh, save the uh, bull market. To be honest, because <laughs> oh they have God. smart contracts allegedly coming out. All right, so let's, let's 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 change tack. Hake and Lucas defending Cardano, Crisp and Tej ripping Cardano. I do think I think the case for countries adopting other alts as like legal tender is. If you play out the geopolitics of like multiple world powers, it seems like countries are going to have to have multiple currencies or fluent in multiple currencies, right? So we're moving off this USD standard into a world where you might need the IT systems to accept multiple currencies. And so it's kind of like once you go from one to two, what's the difference between two and N? You know, um, I feel like it's a fundamental, like we could enter a new equilibrium where countries kind of just learn to accept multiple currencies because they can no longer like only accept one potentially oh, that would be the would, argument would, i don't know wouldn't, if I wouldn't wouldn't they just be um wouldn't they just be uh cbdc or whatever currency agnostic and then just build the back end on ethereum rails as opposed to doing doing you know their own currency adopting an alt per se i guess Accepting legal tender just means something works as like a first class currency. So if you exchange in it, you don't get taxed on it, which I mean, I could see people like if they're accepting Bitcoin, why would they not accept ETH like and let people transact in it? Um, you know, because they already are currency. I mean, yeah, I don't know. What, what about like a Terra Luna? I never know what to call it, but what, what yeah, about that's that dynamic? where you have like, you know, the stable coin that's not pegged to, you know, any of the fiat currencies. And then, but it's still, everything's still operating mostly using like digital fiat currencies. Like that seems like a very realistic use case. I mean, that could also be interesting because like, I, I feel like the strength of like a stable coin like DAI is in its multi-collateral backing. If you have a country, I mean, I don't know exactly how, how these algo stable coins work. Uh, I feel like a lot of them are scams, but um, L Luna seems to be like fairly legitimate. Um, I wonder what it would look like if like an algorithmic stable coin began to be adopted by nations who then use their FX reserves to add to the collateral base to stabilize that, that coin. I don't, you know, it could be. That would be very, that would be very interesting. I mean, that's how Luna works, isn't it? That's how you, yeah. know, you buy. And Lucas, um, you and I, or we were all, I guess, texting about it, but you were right, Lucas. I, I saw the guy who created Luna. He did a tweet storm about it. And basically, like, the reason that Luna isn't doing what happened to Iron is because, like, people use, like, the ecosystem. Yeah. Like, that's, like, literally the only reason is because there's, like, a whole economy where you stay in Luna and it's useful and people are using it for payments and savings and all this stuff. So it doesn't, like, the, the, the Ponzi doesn't 
crash, you know? Um, you, yeah, you need to have use cases. If you don't have use cases, it's just like, it's like, uh, it's, then it's literally just a Ponzi system and you just have to make sure to get your money out before everyone else does. I mean, like, dude, if, if I've learned one thing being in the DGen farming community, it's that first off, like if you're early to a Ponzi scheme, it's so easy to make money off of a Ponzi scheme. But second off that, like most of these coins, I don't understand what their long-term view is. Like, I just don't. They're like Polypingu or like all these things that are coming up on Polygon. These coins aren't like putting out like long-term, this is how we're going to develop an ecosystem. They just launch these coins. People put in tons of money and then they get, and then they lose value in like a week. It's, it's crazy, but people keep doing it. Teej, I think we need to, we need to do a tokenomics pod where we break down yes. mental models for that tokenomics. That would be really cool. Cause the, I mean, yeah, we don't we we need to make sure people aren't getting rugged out here. It's we like multi-level marketing, Mark dude. Cuban. Like literally, we'll get Mark bro. Cuban on the pod afterwards. <laughs> like that one that I showed you, Lucas Polycat. Like you can refer a friend and you get one percent of all their earnings. It's like literally multi-level marketing Ponzi <laughs> fucking scheme. It's crazy, dude. And didn't Polycat turn out to be a rug pull? Didn't it turn into a rug pull? I don't know, dude. I got out of it quickly, but did it? It would make sense that it did. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't in it either, but I, I think it became a rug pool. As Dude, well. I got shook uh, up after that, the iron finance thing, honestly. I got really shook. All right. I, was I, in, I got a question. I got, I got a Duke, nope. a Duke probability uh, question. What is the probability that vaccine passports are required uh, in the next year? For like required by who for what? Yeah, for what? For what? Mm. <laughs> to travel out well to travel back into the united states so if you leave as, and as you come a, back as a citizen yeah i guess they probably couldn't like once you leave and you can't get back not let you back in yeah i feel like it's probably like i i feel i would say like one percent because i feel like what they're gonna do is they'll make it if you do have a vaccine easier to travel but if you don't there's just certain pro protocols you have to go through to get yeah because like you have to get tested Dude, like at the end of the day, these airline companies and like, you know, smaller, you know, companies where people vacation and shit, like they want to make money. That's what I think. And so like they've been hurting so bad for a year and a half, especially the airlines. So, yeah, I think like 1% as well. I was, I was talking to someone about that, though. I agree. Like if you're the if you're the first airline to make your restrictions more lax around vaccines, you're going to draw business away. So it'll be like a, a race to the bottom. Right. But I think that the tricky thing is. Uh, the regulations come from from the governments and the airlines kind of just have to comply. But but either way, um, I think it's like 20%. 20? Ooh, I like these numbers. I'm going to go with... I'll go 10. But yeah, I mean, the same kind of logic for Race to the Bottom probably applies for a lot of countries where like they, they make money off tourism. So they also don't want to just lock everyone out. And I mean, once people get vaxxed, they kind of most people kind of seem like they're chilling out on freaking out about the Rona. Dude, right, I'll, I'll, oh, okay, go ahead, Lucas. No, no, no. Oh, you go ahead, bro. All right. Uh, well, I mean, as the China guy, I mean, I got asked the China question, right? Which is, what do you think is a probability that by 2035, China overtakes the U.S. as the global leader? And by that, I mean, it's got a, it's got a military that's either on par or more powerful than the United States. It's got an economy that's bigger than the United States and an RMB that's used 
pretty globally, almost maybe not at the same level as the dollar, but quickly catching up with the dollar. Um, and it's established kind of a network of nations that are viewed as, you know, um, you know, reliable partners. 95. 95? Yeah, I think it's highly like, I would say, yeah, like 90 or 80. Wow. What about you, Chris? Man, I was going to say 50. I would say 52. I would also say it 50. was only, I mean, there's definitely a lot of the simulations where China surpasses the U.S. in terms of dominance. Um, I, why are you guys so, why, why are you guys so hold, hold such a strong conviction? Maybe I just, is I, it I, more it, about China it, or the U.S.? To me, I don't, the, yeah, to me, US. I don't know anything about China, like besides what I just learned in the past hour. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, to me, it's like, dude, I just, I look around and I'm like, dude, we're so, we're such a weak population here. <laughs> Sometimes that's just how I feel. Yeah. It's just like people I are think... limp, like, and just not ready for, I don't know. Like we, we just don't care. It seems like. I think, you know, in society right now, I mean, us is deriving so much valuable value from being the world's reserve currency, but I think all the other countries are trying to break off of it, which is going to weaken us's power and also now that we live in a world with nuclear weapons like the military advantage isn't as big right like that's already Agreed. kind of like the nukes nuke the advantage of a giant military in some respect right because we're in this world of deterrence and so if we move off the dollar like as the reserve currency it's i don't know what's going to happen in the u.s and we've kind of just strip mined all our manufacturing capacity I mean, it's basically we just have software. I mean, maybe if we just double down on cryptos, we can stay ahead. <laughs> well, that's actually that's actually an, an, the, the the crypto point is an interesting one vis-a-vis -vis China because um, it seems like they're integrating crypto, but in in a way that is really, really, really a risky bet because a country with a lot of BTC or a country with a lot of ETH or whatever the dominant store of value is has this indelible advantage. I, I do think I agree on the the military front, like. Um, like amassing a large physical, like a meat space military is very much like a, a Maginot line type dynamic to- what, What's that mean? To plug, pl mean to like plug biology. It's, it's, basically, <laughs> it's, it's basically like this line that the French set up to the east to defend against the Germans. Um, but it was a line that was, um, it was a fortification um, that was a good hedge against sort of World War I military tactics. And then the Germans, you know, used this tactic of, of Blitzkrieg, which is like fast, quick attack. And the Maginot line was, was no match, right? So it was like fighting last era's war. So I think a, a physical military is, is waning in its importance. But to Chris's point, something like nuclear or the ability to project uh, cyber power is more important. And I, and I think China will, will, will more importantly lead there. Although it'll be interesting to see what happens in, on the Marine front in like the South China Sea. That seems like it's still an important non-Maginot line thing. Um, to answer for me, I'm, I'm more bearish on the US than I am bullish on China. I don't know if China is the, the one to take the cake, but um, yeah, we're, we're entering the age of decadence. I think uh, incompetence riddles the US um, and, you know, empires fall. It's inevitability. It would be an exception if an empire, you know, forged for longer than, than 75 years. So uh, in that vein, my question is, what is the odds that the US uh, default on their debt of any kind at a national level in the next 10 years? Dude, Ooh, I don't, to be honest, heavy. I don't know how that shit works, dude. Like, I know that, I know that we're like in debt and we can't even service our debt, but I like, what, ha like, what does that even mean to, if the U S defaults on our debt? Like, 
basically we wouldn't like nobody would be willing to give us more money that we could then use to pay back existing debts. Is that right? And so does that mean that like that we that other countries wouldn't trade with us as much or like what does that mean kind of what happens? If we default on debt, it, <laughs> I don't think it, anyone it, it's knows hor- really what yeah, happens. It's, it's horrifying it's, either way. It's like because no it's We've yeah, it's it. just. Um... I mean, all of our debt is basically backed by, like, just we create more debt to pay off our existing debt. You know, so it's just like, I mean, well, what that guy is very circular. There's no like base case where it all like the U.S. dollar is backed by U.S. Treasuries, which is debt. So it's like it's hard to it's not it doesn't work like normal debt does. When you think about your relationship with a bank, right? Like, I would say like zero well, percent. I think like zero percent. Well, yeah. Well, but 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 th- that's not really true, right? Because it's it's the the circle jerk has always worked because inflation has been low and interest rates have not been high. If either of those two conditions change and they're reflexive, it makes it very difficult to refinance debt or issue new debt at a rate that's actually payable. So, like, just because we're buying our own debt and we're monetizing our own debt doesn't mean that throwing a wrench into that circular loop doesn't mean that the systems comes crashing, right? But I, I mean, I'm kind of like, I'm not like, I'm not super pumped about the direction the US is going, obviously, and we have major issues, but um, I'm not like, I don't feel like totally hopeless about the country as a whole. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, I don't either, despite what it might sound like. <laughs> yeah, I'm like thinking like, damn, we sound super negative. <laughs> Like, like, you know, I, I think, like, maybe, I mean, we'll see what happens the next election and stuff, but, like, there's a possibility we go in a better direction slowly, um, and it just takes a long, long time to do so. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'd say, like, 0%. I mean, I'm just saying 0% also partly because, like, I just, I don't want to, like, see the world descend into chaos, and so... I would. I prefer to just imagine that it's not going to. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Self, self-preservation. I yeah. think for the boys. I think they'll just like keep increasing the money supply, and like they won't default, and then it'll be like a peaceful transition into like a multi-currency world. But I don't think we'll. They'll default just because. I think people, like part of the reason they make so much debt is so that they can keep issuing money for people to buy oil and like they need to keep expanding the money supply. So I would put it like 1%. I think I'm hoping for peaceful exit from us, uh, global reserve currency status, but another, another, another Brexit, Brexit from currency status. Yeah. Um, shake. Yeah. I mean, cause I don't even understand macroeconomics, but I, that's that, from my very like naive view, that's what I would, that's what I would think too, is that it's like zero, one percent because we can keep printing and like devaluing the dollar. And as the dollar, like the dollar will get weaker against other currencies. Um, but I just, I just don't get like, why would we default if we can increase the money supply? Um, because, because at some point, well, I mean, I think it's a, a good question, but I think at some point you may not be able to continue increasing the money supply, but that's just my opinion. But I would say, I would say 10%. I just interject real quick. I think it's like a great, like, um, it's a great, like, I don't know, analogy or some sort of like metaphor for like the world we live in today where like Hake is like actively like leverage trading and degen farming, but then also is like, I don't understand macroeconomics oh, yeah. at all. And like, you know, the guys up at the top who understand macroeconomics are like, 
they're like thinking about these rational human beings, like making Dude. educated decisions. <laughs> and then they see Hake and they're like, what is what? exactly <laughs> the, that's okay. What you just explained, like, is why I'm bearish on the US. Like, because I look at millennials and and especially zillennials or whatever they're called below us and i'm like dude like the our generations are just so i mean i don't know man like i feel like a lot of kids uh or we're not kids right we're like almost 30 now but a lot of people my age like grew up like so like sheltered um like the parenting style like change you know like like my parents were like beat as kids and it was like totally acceptable um and now it's like, you know, I got hit when I was a kid a couple times and it's like, people would tell me like, oh, like that's so bad. But it's like, I don't know, man. I just feel like it's a soft generation of like idiots who don't read books and don't <laughs> exercise and like sit at a desk all day and like jerk off and then, you know, watch Netflix. It's just like, I look around, I'm like, man, like, you know, obviously there's people who are smart and there's people who are innovating. Um, but I just think it's like such a small percentage of our population. I think most of us are like absolute zombies who've never even like questioned our reality <laughs> like me dude and like with the leverage trading dude literally like it's a funny example i trade these perpetual contracts and i literally don't even know how they work i had to ask tj i was like <laughs> i was like literally don't even know how they work i'm just like oh i know number go up or down and i'm trying to make money you know um dude and then and then you asked me how they work and i also <laughs> don't know how they work <laughs> Yeah, I, I have literally no idea. I just see you post numbers, and I'm like, it looks good, but I don't know what any of it means. Yeah, short of Dogecoin. I don't think I don't <laughs> think anyone really knows how macroeconomics works. It's so complex. I mean, of course, they're trying to say it. They know how it works at the top, but even they're like, well, I don't know. For example, I'm pulling this from Keys, but the Fed just removed the M2 money supply from their website, right? So we're used to like look at the M2 money supply as something to track in terms of inflation. And then we entered this period where they're needing to like increase the money supply so much that M2 is like going to infinity. And they're like, we're not going to show that anymore. And they're going to go and revise the models and the announcements not to talk about that. And it's like, well, did what happened? They obviously don't like they it was important. Now it's not important. That seems like they don't know what's going on. But. That, that I think is what makes this is something that I think makes like cryptocurrencies cool is it's like an opportunity for people to try out all of these like macroeconomic and like financial engineering models and theories that they've had for long times, but really can't like implement unless they become like the treasury secretary or like the, you know, head, head of the Fed or like are like a sovereign of a nation. And like cryptocurrencies, you can be like, all right, I have this really cool economic model um, that I think might work. And instead of like having to spend my whole life to become like, you know, a senior official, I can, you know, kind of just create it, put it out there, see if it gets liquidity and see how the model works. Like, I think that is, I'm sure tons of them will really fail, but that's something that I find super interesting um, and really cool about the whole Dude, thing. Dude, I love that. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but um, I completely agree. And even just like trying out yeah trying out these like incentive like economic incentive models and it's like literally we're testing it on these like irrational humans like what's going to happen um and it's also i think part of what's so cool about crypto is that like you have the opportunity as a uh as an innovator or as like an investor to like just invest in anything you want at to any like in any amount and obviously this is the part that's going to get regulated right because a lot of these like have these buyback and burns and are kind of like dividends and all this shit. But 
um, right now, obviously, it's not regulated. So it's like you can find like what's the example? Um, I forget the name of this project, but it's like these 15 year old fucking nerdy developer kids, and they made one that was in like the top 200. You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, Rari Capital, dude. They're like they're teenage kids, bro, and they got like a hundreds of millions of dollars in liquidity in liquidity at one point, and then it it did get uh it got exploited, but um it's just crazy, I, dude. I, I mean, that's the, to me that's really cool. They don't have to go through the traditional uh, rails, you know, to to get there. There's like views that you know certain technological pro- progress is like somewhat inevitable given path dependence. I think the biggest bull case for like crypto DeFi is that people are just open sourcing like the financial system and it's just so fun to be able to build these systems that people aren't going to stop right like it's whatever the number can go down but anyone who starts playing around with it they're like wait i can build things like this and like there's this whole community and culture and they're like or they could go work for google you know and write like (laughs) 10 lines of code a day and and write like a thousand tests and it's super boring it's just like no people are going to go where the fun's at like it's I, I think in that sense it's inevitable, and and I don't think, I think if the government could really crack down on it, like the the U.S. could crack down on like China, that would be a bear case. But I I think the American decadence, like they won't be able to crack down on it before it's too. Oh, well, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> yeah, well, I wonder. I I I think it's uh, I think it's like really interesting if you um try and look at. Oh shoot! I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Been there. Okay. I think we're yeah we're probably running out of time. I do one question I wanted to ask is like, um, what mental models do you have for thinking about like China U.S. relations? Um, if someone you know wants to get a little more serious about this, maybe they could go dive in to some of those mental models and uh have a new way to kind of frame their thinking about the situation. Um, you know, my mental model, you just mean like, how do I like kind of analyze it? Yeah. Like yeah. a framework or yeah, just an approach. Um, I've become like a really, um, strong, like realist, you know, in international relations, there's like different schools of thought and I fall into the realism school of thought, which is basically like countries will like are just naturally going to try and accumulate as much power as they can, um, because they're always at risk from other countries. And so like, I kind of view that's what's happening in the U.S.-China relationship right now. We have these two major com- countries kind of trying to accumulate as much power, you know, to in fear of the other country. And um, so I kind of look at anything that either country does from that context and try and see if it fits into it um, and then um, kind of break it down from there. But in terms of like China specifically, I think like one of the most helpful things, I can't remember who taught me this, but when I first moved to China, like somebody basically the way they kind of were like, listen, if you want to really understand China and think like deeper, a level deeper about what's happening, whenever China does anything, what you should think to yourself is like, how is this directly in the interest of China? Because like, otherwise they're probably not going to do it. And so if you see something that on the surface, and it's a kind of a pessimistic view, you can use it for most other countries, US included, but um, you know, like climate change, for example, like it's not like China like thinks like, oh, we need to save the world from climate change. It's that in China, environmental degradation is a huge social unrest issue and they need to as quickly as possible clean up the climate and make sure that their environment is clean. And so like 
anytime that you see anything that's coming out of China, if they suddenly make like a sh drastic shift in policy, like it always really helps me. And this sounds really simple, but to just think to myself, like, how is this directly in the interests of China, not like as something where they're trying to cooperate with other countries? Um, the other thing I'd say for China is like, there's so much like content and news that happens on a daily basis. Like if you really, it's, it's almost, I would say impossible to have like a good understanding of what's happening in China. If you are not reading every single day, what's happening because it's moving so quickly right now. And there's so much happening. It's, it's a little bit similar to cryptocurrency in that way, probably. And so, um, if you do want to really like dive into China and become like a China expert or analyst, um, like I would really encourage you, there's tons of good newsletters. There's, uh, the Bill Bishop Sinicism Trivium newsletter um, that come out daily and just kind of aggregate this tremendous amount of information into pretty concise. So I'd be constantly reading and studying um, every single day. And then, I mean, this is the final thing is you just, you need to go to China. Like you just need to go and live in China for a little bit of time or even just go and visit. I, I've been, I've been outside of China now for over a year. And like, I, I, I can physically like feel my confidence and like, my willingness to discuss China related issues with any sense of like, oh, I actually know it's happening decreasing just because I'm not on the ground there. And I just don't have really a good sense for, you know, how are everyday people, policymakers, experts, business people talking about this. Um, you really need to be there to understand what's happening. And so um, if you do want to like understand China stuff, go like you need to go to China. That That's like the most critical aspect of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. It's a hell of a perfect. <laughs> and you should just go to China anyway, because China is an incredible, awesome country. And it's so much fun. And there's tons of cool stuff happening. there. The levered lads go to China. Maybe once, <laughs> maybe once we yeah, get we'll... past a thousand listeners, you know, we'll get <laughs> it'll, it'll make right, it worth it. Hank will last... definitely just rip a GoPro the whole time. <laughs> Last, last, last probability question. What's the probability you guys get a thousand listeners in the next month? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 1% maybe. 10%, 10%. Once, once we, um, once we get this out, we're going to get an ad and it's going to boost us to the top of all the, uh, China analysts. And then oh, yeah. all those analysts that are also interested in crypto are going to be like, wow. Dude, that's true. We're this could be actually it. a really good one to uh, to promote. Um, and I hate that I Pump said zero because I don't want to be bearish on my own fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, you could still get to like 999. <laughs> cool. I mean, honestly, that's the good thing about the pod is we're just, we just love doing it so much um, and have so much fun that it's kind of like we have we have diamond hands you know we'll be doing this five years from now facts still having a great time and honestly having people like you on like just dropping alpha about china like makes it all worth it so uh well, thanks for coming thanks on a man. Lot. yeah thanks a lot for having me guys I'm, I'm happy to come on again i i'll be watching going forward it's a it's a lot of fun talking about this stuff and uh it's a lot of fun watching each of you guys on social media you guys each have your own unique hilarious personality um tj like coming at me with like the super deep questions i'm like dude i have no idea <laughs> like out there coding coding or just being like yeah i also have no idea what's going on or i'm late to this or 
And then you have Hake just out there like mass promoting the most like risky, just nonsensical trades yeah, in the world. It, Amazing. Uh, the th but but I appreciate that each of you guys is like, or my interpretation is you're each doing this as a way to like keep yourself accountable and like educate yourself and educate others. And I think that's like, that's the best thing you can be doing. Yeah, dude. Wow. That was, that was well said. And, um, yeah, our, our three, like, I don't know, the three of us couldn't be more different in some ways, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, just look at the three right now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thanks a lot for having me guys. I, uh, I hope we get to see each other in person soon too. Yeah, awesome. dude. Yeah, man. That'd be great. Appreciate you coming on. It's been a good All right.